Today on The Horse Race, a deep dive into a 2022 ballot measure that will be absolutely everywhere for the next year. Plus, a new poll shows Massachusetts parents are mostly optimistic about this coming school year. It's Thursday, November 18th. Welcome back to The Horse Race, your weekly look at politics, policy, and elections in Massachusetts. I am all alone this week. Lisa's tied up, Steve is elsewhere, but I am joined by a very special returning guest, Maeve Duggan, research director at the Massing Polling Group. Maeve, thank you for keeping me company today. Thank you so much. I mean, it's really my treat. <laughs> well, you're not here just to, you know, shoot the breeze. I hear you guys have a poll out on K-12 parents and how they feel about the return to school. Am I correctly informed? It's true. This is the fifth poll that we have done in a series since the first one was back in June 2020. So we've really been tracking these education issues with parents for the entire scope of the pandemic. So walk me through what a few of these big questions are that you've asked over the course of the pandemic. So I think the headline in this poll, which also happens to be one of the main trends that we've followed, um, is that parents have a pretty high expectation for how their child is going to achieve academically this year. So to put a finer point on it, 35% of parents expect that their child will be ahead of grade level by the end of this year. That not only represents a pretty notable bump from the 20% of parents who say the same thing right now, but it also represents an increase uh, from the proportion of parents who said that back even before COVID began. So to say that expectations are sky high right now uh, is not that much of an exaggeration. Is that in line with what we're kind of seeing on the school level? This this sounds like a great kind of optimistic headspace to be in? Is it reflected in what they're actually seeing? So I think there are two different things going on here with schools. On the one hand, we're hearing from parents that the return to school has had a really positive impact on their kids. About three quarters of parents say that. And they're mostly ascribing that to the social aspect of school, that their kids can be back in the classroom, that they can interact with their teachers again, that kind of thing. So that's going really great. And that is to the credit of schools that they got themselves reopened and that they have been able to welcome students back. On the other hand, we're also hearing from parents that some of those key resources that we know help students achieve things like small class sizes or personalized learning, those types of things are less known to parents. Either they're not sure if it's available for their child at school or uh, they say that it is unavailable. So it's, it's a little bit of, you know, a trade-off at this point where there are real social benefits to kids, but in terms of the academics, um, schools may not be able to provide quite yet what kids need to not only catch up, but also meet these really high expectations that parents have. And are there differences between different groups of parents about how they feel about this prospect? Or is it kind of across the board, we're glad students are, are back in school more now and we're confident that they will be at or past grade level? So some of the places we've seen the bigger differences are with school type. So for example, when we talk about those resources that are available, um, we see that parents of public school kids are less likely to say that they have those learning resources available to them um, compared to especially Catholic and private school parents. The other place where there are some bigger differences uh, is 
when we look at how parents are currently assessing their child's achievement. And this is where it becomes even more concerning because parents who say right now that their child is behind grade level are also less likely to say that they have those learning resources available to them. So the, the kids who are farthest behind also have the fewest resources. Well, this has been a quick look, but Maeve, where can folks find the results in detail? Absolutely. If you head to massincpolling.com slash education, you can look at our slide deck, you can view our crosstabs and top line, and you can also watch a recording of uh, the event that we did just this morning, uh, where we also had a wonderful panel discussion with some education advocates in the state. I always love it when you guys have the panel discussions to kind of put the polls in context. So I heartily recommend everyone go over and and, and go listen to Maeve talk more. <laughs> <laughs> My soothing, sweet voice. <laughs> well, thank you so much for keeping me company up top, and I will let you get back to your day. Thanks, Maeve. Thanks so much, Jen. Have a good one. Happy ballot signature deadline week, everyone. Uh, November 17th, so the day I'm recording, but for you lovely folks, the day known as yesterday, is slash was the deadline to submit signatures for 2022 ballot measures to city and town clerks for certification. And today we're going to spend the entire episode talking about an initiative that submitted the needed amount of signatures and will almost certainly be in front of Massachusetts voters next November. If passed, this ballot measure would establish that platform-based drivers would be considered independent contractors and also set certain required benefits specifically for those workers while exempting the companies that employ them from providing benefits required by state law for normal employees. To talk about the campaign backing this ballot measure, I'm joined by Connor Units, Senior VP at Solomon McCowan & Sensi and spokesperson for the Massachusetts Coalition for Independent Work. Thank you so much for being here to help us situate our listeners for a long ballot season, Connor. Thanks, Jennifer. Happy to be here. So we'll have both sides explain their view of the ballot measure. So start us off here. How would you describe this initiative? So I would describe this initiative as the opportunity to look forward for drivers and deliver the flexibility and benefits that they have overwhelmingly asked for to to make this work better for them. Uh, Any driver you speak to, and we've spoken to thousands of drivers, they will tell you that the most important aspect of, of driving for them is the ability to work whenever they want, wherever they want, as long as they want, uh, and, and do it on their own schedule and be their own boss. This solution that we're proposing, this ballot question and and, uh, legislation as well, would not only protect that flexibility, ensure they can have it, but add new benefits and protections that will make their, uh, their entire experience better. So speaking of the bill, just so that people are aware of both of these things kind of happening in parallel, are there any notable differences between the two of them that voters should be aware of as they're kind of framing this in their heads? Yeah, the goals are the same for both, and and that is to protect the flexibility and add new benefits for drivers. Uh, The legislation came first. It's it's structured in a different way, um, but obviously because it's a piece of legislation, it can very easily be amended by the legislature. And, and, um, you know, it was not a bill that was, it's a bill that we support. It was not a bill that was sponsored by us or or, um, pushed forward by us. It's a bill that we think is a great starting point for a legislative discussion. It had a a hearing earlier this year that um, had a lot of input from both sides and really think uh, it was a great start and an opportunity for the legislature to look at this issue uh, and hopefully uh, take it on and, and create a future that's better for drivers. 
So focusing on drivers for a second, you know, the the drivers in in these particular platform-based jobs are a diverse group. And so you mentioned flexibility, but I'd love it if you could go a little bit into detail more about the needs that you understand the drivers to have and how this particular ballot measure would meet them. Absolutely. So uh, flexibility, it's a, it's not, um, like the way I think people have started to talk about flexibility, like, uh, oh, I can work in the office or I can work from home, right? For drivers, it's it's very different for everybody. Um, it could be, okay, well, uh, like the vast majority of drivers, 82% of drivers in Massachusetts who drive fewer than 15 hours a week, this is something I just like to do around my other job or around my kid's schedule uh, to help make some extra income or pay the bills um, uh, or just save up for something. We've talked to drivers who say, oh yeah, well, I, I drove nights and weekends for a couple of months so I could save up for my wedding. Uh, it, it can be as simple as that. For others, they decide that they really like doing this and they want to drive uh, full, quote unquote, full-time hours, but that doesn't necessarily mean they consider it a full-time job because their full-time hours might be, oh, they, they drive for 10 hours Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday, and they take the rest of the weekend off. So it's very different from everyone for everyone in it. In it um, it changes minute by minute. Uh, you know, you could be intending to work the entire day and decide after one ride or one delivery, uh, you know what, I'd rather take the rest of the day off. Or, uh, you know what, I'm not going to drive with Uber anymore today. I'm going to go do DoorDash. And so it's that kind of flexibility to move across platforms, to, to change uh, in a minute's notice, to take time off. I, I talked to a driver at one point. His name is Adriano, lives out in Framingham, and he had been a cook, he had been in financial services, and didn't really like any of those jobs. And a few years ago, he decided just to drive, and he drives six days a week, he gets up every Monday and sets his own schedule for the week, and he drives as many hours as he can, and then he takes three four-week vacations every single year. Uh, and goes to visit his family in Brazil. And he said to me, there was no other job I've ever had or ever could have where I'd have that kind of flexibility to take a four-week vacation three times a year. So flexibility means something different to all of these drivers. Um, and the other uh, thing I would just say about it is that it's not an abstract concept either. There was a study, uh, a working paper by a Harvard Business School professor that just came out a couple of months ago, and it looked at raw data from DoorDash drivers. And this is not something sponsored by DoorDash, not paid for by DoorDash. Uh, they just provided this, this uh, research of the data. And he found that any changes in flexibility uh, or restriction of flexibility meant a 17%, it was equivalent to a 17% cut in pay for those drivers. So it's not an abstract concept. It has real financial impact for these folks. So I'm so glad you brought up that study. So I've been going through a few of these. Um, and one of the things that was particularly interesting to me and has kind of been bouncing around in, in many of the discussions here is there seems to be kind of a presumption on, on the part of uh, the coalition in favor of this that flexibility and employee status are somehow uh, fundamentally at odds. That if you're an employee, you can't have flexible hours but there's no statutory definition of saying, for instance, an employee has to have, uh, you know, shift work or has to have particular uh, employment requirements. And that study in particular noted that we don't actually know how um, these how these platforms would respond to this legislation. So we're kind of speculating. And I wonder if you can you can clarify a little bit is is the implication that uh, if their workers are considered employees, they would be forced to go to some sort of shift schedule. Why would there be a flexibility loss? Well, you just said, right? So in the law, yes, there's nothing that says uh, that they have to be on shifts. Find any other industry, 
any other company that allows the kind of flexibility that gig work into driving for rideshare or delivering for rideshare allows. There are simply no examples where it exists like like it does here. Uh, if I work at Starbucks, I can't work for an hour in the morning and then walk across the street to Dunkin' Donuts and pour coffee over there and do that for about 20 minutes. But then, uh, you know what? I think I'd rather go over and make sandwiches at Potbelly. I'm going to do that for 10 minutes. And then I'm going to take a few hours off and I might go back to Starbucks tonight or I might go back to Dunks. It depends on who's offering me the best rate. And then I'm going to take a couple of days off and my kids got a dentist appointment tomorrow. So it, I mean, that's just not realistic and it doesn't happen in any other industry like that. That's the kind of flexibility that that ride share and, and delivery allows for these drivers. So, so what is it about the employee classification that would prevent them from offering that though? So when you look at some of these studies and they talk about the engaged time uh, and the reality is that a lot of disengaged or unengaged time is when drivers are either taking time off to to do something else, take our kid to their appointment, or they're on their way somewhere and they're going to leave the app on because they might, you know, if they get a convenient ride along the way, they might pick it up, uh, but they don't have to. They have the ability to say yes or no to any job. And they can also be on another app. Just because I've got the Uber app open, for example, doesn't mean that I'm not currently doing a delivery for DoorDash or Instacart. And so if they were to become employees, uh, just like any other employer out there would, the companies would would want some more control over that time. Like if I'm, again, go back to the barista example, if I'm standing at the counter at Dunkin' Donuts, um, Starbucks isn't going to be paying me while I'm over there doing that. So why should, uh, you know, a, a rideshare company pay a driver because they've got the app open if maybe they're out doing a delivery for a delivery company. So it, it just fails the common sense test. And, and that I think is, uh, you know, it's an argument the other side makes that they know is disingenuous because it, it doesn't really have any examples in the real world where this could work. And if you talk to our drivers, they'll tell you that they've, they've worked as employees. They've done nine to five jobs. They've done part-time jobs. They've worked at different retail and that lifestyle didn't work for them because they had a boss or they had to have a shift or they got an assignment. Uh, and going back to that Harvard business school study, even um, when, when folks are on a shift, if it's not the, the shift they want to be on, that accounts for a 5% decrease in pay. Uh, so that's why this work is so important because they get to decide, decide their schedules to be their own bosses and they don't have to do what anyone else wants them to do. Uh, so I'll come back to that in a second. I think I do have to, of course, talk about the uh, very expensive elephant in the room, which is that this comes in in a broader national context right now. Uh, Proposition 22 passed in California after about $200 million were spent primarily by, you know, these platform companies to to get it through the Massachusetts ballot measure. The estimates so far are looking at about $100 million dollars. Uh, why shouldn't be uh, voters be skeptical of the intentions here when rideshare and app-based delivery companies are are paying that much to not have their workers classified as traditional state employees? Well, first, that hundred million dollar number is something the other side made up and has no basis in reality or or anything to back it up. Um, second, Prop Twenty Two has been a smashing success in California. Uh, it has been in effect for just about a year. And uh, recent results or recent surveys from drivers themselves have found that not only do 87% of them still support the law 
84% of them say that other states should adopt this. 75% of them say that they're making more money now than they were before Prop 22. Prop 22 is a smashing success and, and should give more impetus to uh, voters in other states to support this type of thing. Because again, this is not about what's happened in the past or, or what exists today. This is about looking towards the future and creating a, an opportunity for these drivers to work the way they want to work and earn the way they want to earn while also granting them new benefits and protections. And we haven't even talked about what's what's in the bill besides flexibility, but we're talking about uh, an earnings floor of 120% of minimum wage. So again, the people that are that want to make more than that and drive more than that, there's no cap on this. This is the floor, the minimum they're they're going to earn. Uh, uh, healthcare stipends for folks who drive more than 15 hours a week, including a significant full-time or full um, paid stipends of 100% of, of the mass connector premium for those who drive more than 25 hours a week, uh, paid sick time and paid family medical leave, just the same as any employee in Massachusetts. Those provisions weren't in Prop 22, but they have been added to this ballot question here in Massachusetts. There's protections uh, for injuries in the, for, um, excuse me, occupational hazard insurance. There are protections against discrimination. There is a, uh, an appeals process for deactivations for drivers. These are all things that benefit drivers that, that they would like to see. And that comes on top of protecting their flexibility. So these benefits themselves, why isn't that something that the companies are providing on their own? Why does it need to be a ballot measure to actually put those in place? Uh, well, as we talked about before, you know, we'd love for the legislature to take these on uh, and, and look at this issue. The legislature in the, his, in the past has been proactive in addressing this issue. Um, I think in a, in a lot of cases, this is also about talking to drivers about what they want to see in the future. There are plenty of drivers who don't want anything to change, who think the system works great. Um, this system, though, is a, is a way to look at it that pulls in a lot of new benefits and protections for them, that protects the flexibility, that provides a better solution overall uh, in terms of the ballot question. And again, um, to the extent that the legislature weighs in here, it could look different from what's in the ballot question. And, and uh, our goal is really just to have uh, a path to the future that provides these benefits and protections for drivers while in ensuring their flexibility. And so Proposition 22 is kind of at an awkward place right now. Um, a, judge, a superior court judge in California ruled it unconstitutional for procedural grounds, but also just because it kind of went beyond the scope of the single issue question that is expected of California ballot measures. So why would Massachusetts voters not expect something similar to end up happening here? Uh, the, the way those two bills are written, that California Prop 22 would have no impact. First of all, I should note that if you ask the, the companies out in California the, or the campaign folks in California, they're very confident that they're going to win that case on appeal. Right. They're appealing, of course. Sorry. <laughs> um, second, uh, there is a provision in there that's at the heart of that challenge that is not included here in Massachusetts because our constitution um, wouldn't allow for it anyway, which is, you know, the legislature here in Massachusetts always has the ability to to uh, change, amend any piece of legislation, in, including ballot questions. Uh, and that's at the uh, piece of the issue out there. So those issues are not in play here. They were not included in the ballot question. Um, you know, the attorney general did certify our question here. And we've uh, just, uh, as of today, submitted more than 260,000 signatures, uh, 100,000, 130,000 on each version of the ballot question. Uh, there are two versions kind of to the point you just made, one of which includes training, one doesn't, uh, anticipating that the litigators on the other side of this thing um, may challenge it. Uh, but we are extremely confident in our ability to move forward and that we would win any appeals or, or court cases. 
Great. And uh, I'm sure you're familiar enough with this one. Uh, I would love to get your your take on the UC Berkeley study that looked at the uh, actual provisions of the Massachusetts ballot measure and concluded that because of some of the language specifically around engaged time, even though the, the stated claim is 120% of minimum wage, depending on uh, when and how the drivers work, they might end up making as little as under $5 an hour. Right. So a few points on this. First, um, ask drivers in Massachusetts if they would be doing this job for $5 an hour. It's a ludicrous uh, guess. And in, in, uh, I know Luis Ramos, who testified at the hearing right after, right before, the study came out um, coincidentally right before a hearing and he just interrupted his testimony to point out that he as a driver would never drive for that low. And, and, and in fact, he makes significantly more than that. And that's what you'll hear from other drivers here too. But look, we're in Massachusetts, even just last month, we added 11,000 jobs to the economy and our unemployment rate went up to 5.2%. So to, to somehow, or to go to any restaurant where they're having trouble hiring or any other job in Massachusetts where they're, they can't find workers and to somehow suggest that drivers are going to drive for $5 an hour when they could be making $17, $18 an hour doing virtually any other job in Massachusetts doesn't pass the smell test. That's number one. Number two, they made this, they put out almost the exact same study in California before Prop 22. And as I noted before, Prop 22 drivers were 75% of drivers say they're making more money now than they were before Prop 22 passed. So it, it, you're talking about a study that was funded by labor, uh, promoted by labor, uh, written by somebody with very close ties to labor um, that does not hold up to what's happening in California and certainly doesn't stand up when you ask drivers uh, what they actually feel about how they're making here, what they're making here. Well, uh, that's all the time we have for now. Again, this is going to be a long season. We'll come back to the question on the podcast in the future, I'm sure. But for now, uh, Connor Units, thank you so much for coming on to walk us through it at this early stage. Thanks, Jennifer. Okay, let's take a turn over to the opposition. I'm joined by labor attorney Shannon Liss Reardon. She's built a career defined by spearheading class actions against corporations like FedEx, Starbucks, and yes, Uber, Lyft, and other on-demand service apps, largely focused on how they classify their workers. So Shannon, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So how would you describe what this ballot measure and bill adjoining combination seek to do in Massachusetts? So what these gig economy companies are trying to do, like Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, is, is really buy themselves a law here in Massachusetts to exempt themselves from all the requirements that all other employers in Massachusetts have to follow. They're trying to legitimize classifying their workers as independent contractors so that they don't have to pay the minimum wage overtime, reimburse them for their expenses, or provide them any other protections that all employees get, like unemployment, workers' comp, um, and a whole host of protections that we have for employees here in Massachusetts. So let's make sure listeners know where you're coming from here. Uh, to my recollection, specifically where it comes to uh, basically ride-hailing apps or other platform-based work, you've been up against these companies in court since around 2013 or so, so for almost 10 years. Uh, what behaviors have you been seeking to address over that time, and how does this particular ballot measure fit into that? Yes, I have been challenging all of these companies in court for many years now because they're all drawing from the same playbook of trying to misclassify their workers as independent contractors so that they don't have to give them all of these protections as employees that I just described. Um, and, and by doing that, they are 
not only depriving employees of the benefits and guarantees that they should have, but they're, but they're robbing the state coffers. They're not paying taxes that all employers have to pay. Um, they're not paying into our unemployment funds. They're not paying into workers' comp. Um, and if passengers get injured when they're um, uh, when they're in an Uber or a Lyft ride, or you know, get hit by a delivery driver who's rushing to get some delivery done. That the companies deny that they're liable because they say that these workers aren't their employees, and so even bystanders, customers are, are in grave risk if these employees don't have the rights and protections of employees. So these companies just came into Massachusetts at the beginning of their existence and just steamrolled over our laws and really just ignored our laws. We in Massachusetts have one of the strongest laws in the country protecting against this type of abuse and exploitation by employers. These companies just ignored it. Um, they, are fi they finally realized that they are up against a real legal problem because the attorney general's office has sued them. Uh, and I think they saw the writing on the wall and they realized that they were actually going to be required at last to comply with Massachusetts law. And so what do they do? They pivot to what they did in California, which is spend a boatload of money, nine figures, to try to write the law the way they would like it to be so that they can continue to avoid paying for the cost of having employees in Massachusetts. So you touched on a few things that we're going to get into in a bit more detail. I'd like to start actually with the California question. So Proposition 22 passed in California after, as you noted correctly, a, a, a really extraordinary amount of money being spent on on that campaign. I think it was the most expensive referendum that we've ever seen in the country for this in this sort of measure. So how similar is what we're seeing in Massachusetts to what we saw in Proposition 22? It's it's essentially the same thing. Um, they, you know, their their two hundred million dollars bought them a law in California, and now they're trying to take it across the country to Massachusetts. It's it's really more of the same. It's not identically worded, but it's pretty close, and it's the same idea. Interestingly, it's because in California, the attorney general's office there was also closing in on them on a lawsuit. Um, they had avoided all of our private lawsuits over the years by using an arbitration clause to try to kick our cases, our class action cases that I've been fighting for years out of court. So we've spent years fighting over the enforceability of these arbitration clauses. But um, when it came to having to defend against attorney generals going after them, these companies didn't have anywhere else to turn. So that's why they're now turning toward investing in a ballot initiative to rewrite the law. So proponents of this are saying very specifically that this is going to ensure driver flexibility while also ingraining some some basic benefits, which they're saying based on their internal polling is in line with drivers want. So uh, going to tee you up for this one. Isn't that a reasonable reading of this measure or what's wrong with that uh, framing? No, no, that's so wrong on so many levels. So let me explain that to you. So if they, what they were really interested in doing is providing these benefits to their workers, they could do that. They could do that tomorrow. Nothing's stopping them. They don't need to spend $100 million to provide some benefits to their workers. There's a reason that they are willing to pay over $100 million to try to get this law changed in Massachusetts. And that's because it's going to save them an enormous amount of money and cut off any liability um, or, or attempt to cut off any liability for their egregious violations of workers' rights, as well as 
the, the impact they would have on consumers and on taxpayers in Massachusetts. So the way that they justify this is the exact same playbook that they used in California is they try to claim that, oh, drivers like the flexibility that they get from these platforms. And of course they do. That's why so many drivers are working for them. But there's absolutely nothing about independent contractor status that is required in order for workers to have flexibility. These drivers can have all the protections that they should have under state law as employees and have that flexibility. I mean, if you look at the world today, more and more employers are offering flexibility to their employees, especially now in the pandemic, coming out of the pandemic. So many employees um, have the flexibility as to when and where they work. There's nothing about that that's incompatible with employee status. The companies are just using that um, frankly, to deceive the workers and try to deceive the, the public into thinking that this is somehow in the workers' interest. And um, I mean, they did it in California. In California, polls showed that people left uh, the polls thinking that they had supported the workers, that they had supported what the workers wanted, what the unions were fighting for, because they were confused by the messaging. So we, we know that they're gonna be spending a lot of money here in Massachusetts also just to confuse people on it. But, but just ask yourself this question. If this initiative were really in the interests of the workers, why would Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Grubhub and all these companies be planning to put $100 million into supporting the workers? This is not to support the workers. So getting into exactly on that note, uh, what the AG's lawsuit is is arguing and and also just in line with cases that you've brought over the years, um, what is it about Uber or Lyft or DoorDash employees that you think does fall legally inside the classification of employee, not independent contractor? And why does that one particular turn of phrase have such an impact on on the labor interests at stake? So as I said, we in Massachusetts have one of the strongest laws in the country protecting workers against misclassification. And in fact, it was California borrowed our law, which led to what happened in California last year. But um, anyway, the Massachusetts law presumes that workers are employees. And if an employer wants to not have to pay for all of the rights, um, that employees have, they have to prove that they're independent contractors. And we have a test in Massachusetts, it's called the ABC test. The employer has to prove all three factors of the test in order to establish that someone is an independent contractor, not an employee. Um, one of the factors is particularly difficult under Massachusetts law, which is that they have to prove that the work is being provided outside the usual course of business of the employer. I know that sounds kind of legalistic, but basically it means that if you're a car service, um, the drivers who drive for your car service are your employees. If you're a food delivery service, the people who are delivering the food for you are your employees. If you are a, um, a restaurant, people who are serving your meals are, are your employees. Um, on the other hand, if you are a business uh, and you have a plumber come in and fix your pipes, they're probably not your employee. They're not doing performing services in your usual course of business. Um, but what these companies have done is they've claimed that there's something brand new, you know, because they are work on an app, because the work is uh, distributed to the workers differently from how traditional companies 
have worked. They, they claim that somehow these rules don't apply to them. And, they, and they've made these outrageous arguments in court that Uber and Lyft have claimed that they're not car services and DoorDash and Webhub have claimed that they're not food delivery services. They all like to claim that they are a platform that connects uh, workers with customers and you know, they're, they're just like Craigslist, which obviously they're not because they're, they're running these companies. Um, we've beaten companies in court so many times who have tried to make that distinction. Um, in FedEx, uh, I, I litigated against FedEx for many years, tried to convince the courts that it wasn't a delivery company, claimed that it was a uh, logistics business that connected people who wanted to send packages with independent businesses who were delivering packages. I was like, come on guys, these are delivery drivers. They work, they work for you FedEx. And the courts agreed with that. And the, and the courts are agreeing that, that Uber and Lyft drivers, et cetera, are, they work for the company. They perform the services within the usual course of business of these companies. So they can't get around the law any longer. Yeah. So, so kind of to that point as well is is the the broader question that I think there is is being argued in in these cases, which is that our you know our current conceptions of worker categories don't make sense for or don't apply to the gig economy somehow, and so there's this effort to kind of carve out this third category um, in a way. Uh, are there comparable workers who are traditionally considered employees? Like, do we have a framework that can easily be applied here, or is it really something very new? It is not new. This has been going on forever. I've spent my career fighting against this exact same argument. Um, uh, you know, I've gone up against strip clubs who tried to claim that strippers are independent contractors. They're running their own business as they're dancing on their poles and, you know, they have their own customers. You know, the courts didn't buy that. Um, I've gone up against cleaning companies who've tried to sell jobs to their mostly immigrant um, workforces claiming that they're running their own business when really they were paying money to scrub toilets and office buildings. I mean, this is a very old and used trick. This trick has been used over and over and over again by companies. I've spent my career fighting against it and, and, and winning um, because it's just, it's just a ploy to try to avoid all of the protections that we've built up as a society over many decades to protect employees. This is really, this is a social contract that we have. And these companies are trying to tear it apart. And, and this battle is so important because it's not just about Uber drivers and Lyft drivers and DoorDash drivers. This is about all of our jobs. This is about, this is about your job. Um, if this industry gets away with carving themselves out of this law and claiming that its workers are a different type of workers who don't need all those old fashioned protections like minimum wage and overtime, um, it, it's just going to be the it's, it's a slippery slope. Every single industry is going to figure out how to claim that they are also an app-based company and that their workers also don't need or deserve all of those employee protections. So this is not just about the future of Uber and Lyft drivers in Massachusetts. This is about the future of work. And this battle we're having here in Massachusetts is ground zero. This is a battle that is is being waged and is going to be waged across the country. And across the country, eyes are on us to see what we do uh, and if, if this industry can get away with us again. And, and we are doing everything we can to make sure that they do not. 
And kind of the prospect of uh, gig workers being um, constrained by, for instance, uh, shifts or loss of flexibility, which again, as you touched on, isn't something that's statutorily required for em- employees. Um, but one of the things that comes up a lot and one of the most often cited studies and internal polling say drivers essentially saying if they can't pick their schedules, they wouldn't be gig workers. So what are your thoughts on the the impact of, of this kind of threatened loss of flexibility to the actual workforce uh, at, at hand here? Well, that's exactly what you just said. It's a threat. Um, these companies know that they are not going to have all of these thousands of workers doing this work for them if they can't pick their own schedules. Um, it's just, it's the economics of what they have created that they're, these companies have to allow flexibility because otherwise they're not going to have workers who will do their work. They promised them these flexible arrangements. Um, that's the only way they're going to be able to have anyone do it. So this threat that they're going to take away their flexibility if they don't get the law changed the way they want, it's its a threat and it's an empty threat. And I've seen it over and over and over again through my law practice over the last two decades that that's what companies say when they are challenged for misclassifying their workers. They try to scare the workers into saying, oh, you want it this way because this is the only way it's going to work. And it's just it's just not true. It's 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 a lie. Well, uh, unfortunately, because we could spend very easily all day on this, that is all the time we have for this. Shannon Liss Reardon, thank you so much for coming on and walking us through the No campaign. Thank you so much for having me. Well, for now, that is all the time we have. I am Jennifer Smith, here with nobody else, but thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts, subscribe to the Massachusetts Politico Playbook and give Lisa a ring, and don't forget to ping the Massing Polling Group for polls if you need any polls done. We're off for next week, because I hear there's a holiday, but keep an eye out for us the week after that. Happy Thanksgiving, and we'll all see you soon.